The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue with the adventure that we started last time. For the first time in the history of these satsangs, we started going and exploring some of the fundamental texts of the Tantric and Hatha Yogic tradition. We have started with the most encyclopedic and one of the most comprehensive of these texts known under the name of Gyaranda Samhita. It's the collection of teachings of the sage Gyaranda. And uh, I have, last time I made an introduction in the nature, into the nature of these texts as well as I managed to go through a few of the introductory shlokas. These texts are written in versets of two lines in Sanskrit, which in Sanskrit are called shlokas, and they are approximately equivalent to what English language call versets, like double verses. And um, I have concluded the first lecture on Geranda Samhita, by, with the verse number 8 from chapter number 1 there are 4 chapters all in all and uh, this verse number 8 is very beautiful and very profound because it compares the practice of yoga to a fire that is used to bake an earthen pot and it is using a very very inspired comparison by which it shows that exactly as an earthen pot, if it would be used for domestic chores, would dissolve and collapse due to the water itself. The same water pot, if it is properly baked, it can be used for centuries and it will fulfill its job. Therefore, here the sage Geranda has given the teaching, the profound teaching, that yoga is preparing the human being for something much greater. Actually, an earthen pot is, used, is made to be used as a pot, but still it cannot be used as a pot as long as it has not been baked into an oven. The human being is built for something, but the human being cannot live that life until the human being has baked itself through the fire of yoga. And now, in the shloka number nine, with which we start tonight's presentation, Geranda starts being systematic. There are many systematic presentations in other traditions of yoga and spirituality, like the Tibetan yogis, borrowing from the Chinese system. They are very systematic with the, by using also the Buddhist style, which starts with the four noble truths, and then they go to the ten causes of regret, and everything is classified. The same classifications, we see them much in the Far Eastern medicine, in the Chinese traditional medicine, and others. And this is a system which is not often used in India. In India, they have their attempt of classifying things, but they quit it quickly in the favor of bhakti yoga, enthusiasm, and then t 
to them this sort of engineering mentality that everything has to be classified and you want to know this is so and this is so, it's like it's too square for them. Well, Geranda is closest to the Chinese style of all of them. He really likes his classifications. That's why many people use the text of Geranda because it's easy to understand and it is easy to see through the science of yoga like what it is made of. However, it confuses as well a little bit although Geranda is so systematic as it starts now because Geranda uses another system than the classical yogas. The yoga of Patanjali defines the evolution of the human being in eight steps. Geranda divides it in seven steps. And he says, this yoga, this yoga which I'm teaching to you, don't forget that in this text, the sage Geranda is answering to his disciple. His disciple, Chanda Kapali, comes and says, I'm ready to learn yoga. And he has the right attitude, and he has formulated the request in the right, at the right time, in the right way. And Geranda is very pleased, and in a fatherly way, starts teaching him yoga. So he says, this yoga, after he spoke generalities, now he starts going specific. He says, this yoga is sevenfold. So we know from the beginning that Geranda is going to define a system of evolution, which will go like in seven steps. Does it mean it's less than the system of Patanjali, which is in eight steps? No. It simply means that the same mountain, the mountain of yoga, out of which the bottom line is daily life, and the top is the state of samadhi, the mountain of yoga has been divided in, different, in a different manner by using different criteria. So they speak about the same thing, but they look with different markers. This yoga, he says, is sevenfold. Purification or shodana, outer and inner strength or dridhatha, firmness and stability, sthairiyam, calmness and courage, which he calls dhairiyam, lightness and kindness, which is called laghavam, direct perception and realization, which is pratyaksham, and seventh and last, isolation or detachment or transcendence, which he calls nirliptam, a word which is both close to nirvana and to nirvikalpa samadhi. It starts from the same root, nir. So, he says, you want to learn yoga my way, first you have to reach purification. Then you have to reach outer and inner strength. Then you have to reach firmness and stability. Then you have to reach calmness and courage. Then you have to reach lightness and kindness. Because all these words have double entendre meanings, because when he says lightness, he means also something internal and something in the terms of the energy and of the being. Direct perception and realization is the sixth step by meditation. And finally, the detachment, the transcendent consciousness by as the last stage. Of course, the last stage must always be the same or else he is not talking about a complete yoga. So, they are superimposed, but as you can see, he presents it in another way. And then he explains these seven steps. He says purification, 
like the first step, which he says, you can't start yoga without purification. See, in Agama, for example, we don't put it this way. In Agama, we start with Yama and Niyama and the classical eight steps because that's the classical uh, way of doing it. But actually, most of you who have crossed the path of the first level and the second and the third, maybe, you know that in the beginning, inevitably, there happens purification. There are many people enduring some degrees of purification even a year or two after they started their yoga practice, depending on various parameters, like what luggage they came with to yoga. If you came to yoga after years and years of self-abuse, then you've got big debts to pay. And also, it's a matter of karma, and it's a matter that if you have done something, like you may have done yoga very well for a couple of years, and then the demons worked on your brains, and you got discouraged, and you fell off the path, and then you started smoking or eating crap or whatever, and then you come back to yoga, and then again you have to purify. Because you meanwhile you have spoiled some of the things which you have built slowly, slowly, and now you have to start from scratch with some of these things. It will not last as long as first time, usually, but uh, still it will be there. So, he says in the beginning there will be purification. Well, we don't define it like this in Agama, but we know that purification, physical and then emotional and others are inevitable aspects in the practice. And even when we don't aim for it as programmatically as Geranda does here, nevertheless purification is one of the first things that you encounter in the spiritual practice. So he says, purification, the first of them, is obtained through the six acts of Kriya, the so-called Shatkarma Kriya. So here, Geranda places at the first rung, the first step on the ladder of yoga, the six Kriyas of yoga. See, in, here in Agama, we teach you in day two the four main Kriyas for the morning, cleaning the tongue and cleaning the teeth and all that. Then in the end of the week two, you learn about Vamana Dauti as a very efficient one. Then in the end of the week three, you learn about Shankar Prakshalana, the bowel cleanse, the full cleanse, in case you want to go that far. And then there are many more Kriyas. There are about 20-something Kriyas in this system, which is in six categories, in six headlines. And those Kriyas, you learn them, some of them in the second level, some of them in the third level, some of them even further like Basti Kriya and some advanced ones, you learn them uh, much further in the curriculum of Agama. So, it's, see, it's obvious that we cut the cake in a way different from Geranda. Geranda cuts the cake like this, and he sees the layers of yoga in one way, and we cut the cake like this, and therefore some things like, for us, purification is not, like we start yoga by just doing Kriyas, 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 and only Kriyas, for about six months, and then we are going to go to the next step, whatever that next step is. Uh, so it's another system, obviously. This is a peculiar, particular system belonging to one teacher, your, about 250 years ago, a great teacher who left a written document of this. But he explains, first step, for me, Geranda, this means the six Kriyas. You do the Kriya Yoga. Strength, we define the second thing, that after you get purified, you should achieve a certain strength. And he says here very clearly, strength, according to Geranda, is given by the asanas, or postures. 
Like he says, if you will practice Hatha Yoga and you will do postures, your body will acquire inner and outer strength. Like outer strength, because obviously whoever does lots of Hatha Yoga, their body is fit and strong. But there is also inner strength. For example, people who are weak inside, they try to do 10 minutes of Paschimottanasana, which is a relatively simple asana, and they can't do it. Why? Because it's not only about muscles and tendons, it's about the mind. A person who is profoundly disturbed emotionally and mentally will never be able to do 10 minutes of Paschimottanasana because they don't have the patience, because they have a certain inner agony. So here, Geranda speaks in very oblique ways. You will see that always he refers to subtle things, to energies, and sometimes he mixes in a typical yogic Indian way, because he speaks about physical things, but he means energetic things. He speaks about some energetical things, but he also points at some physical things. Sanskrit language, and especially the language of the yogis, is a language which allows multiple meanings. So you speak at the same time about one thing and about another. You know, you say, people doing this are becoming strong. But strong can mean financially strong, socially strong, philosophically strong, mentally strong. It can also mean physically strong. So it's a multitude of meanings when you use words in a slightly fuzzy way, which they do on purpose, because they want to leave their options open, like they want to say many things, precisely by talking not very millimetrically, but by talking in a vague way. Strength is given by the asanas or posture. So, ah, that's his second level. After the kriyas, you, he will speak about asanas. Steadiness by the mudras. So he defined his third level that you become steady. And that steadiness, he says, is obtained by another class of yoga techniques, which he describes as mudras. And we are going to see what does he actually understand by mudras. And the fourth level, where he says you have to reach calmness and courage, a word which is a bit of calmness, a bit of courage. In calmness, he says, by pratyahara. It is paradoxical because after asanas he puts mudras which does not exist in the system of Patanjali. For Patanjali, mudras, bandhas, asanas are one and the same thing. And he jumps directly then to pratyahara which is the fourth level according to Patanjali. And pratyahara as all of you learn in the third day of our yoga courses here in Agama, pratyahara means insulation, to be able to insulate yourself from disturbing outer influences such as close your eyes don't listen to the external ado and focus on your things and be like interiorized this capacity to be able to not be distracted at least to a certain extent because it's not black and white there are many shades of gray there this capacity he calls pratyahara and he said this will reach to calmness and courage this is what it does See, it's a fresh perspective. Like, for example, Patanjali or all the other people of yoga, they've never looked at it like, which are the fruits of Pratyahara? According to Geranda in the 18th century, Pratyahara is bestowing on the human being a certain state of calmness and courage. Like one can be, have equanimity, not be rocked 
too much, not be disturbed too much by what is happening. And he continues in the strophe 11, in the verse 11, because he wants to explain all those seven. And he already explained how he plans to present four of them. So he said purification by Kriya, strength by Asanas, steadiness by Mudras, calmness by Pratyahara. And then he continues in 11. Lightness, what he called here Laghavam, and which means lightness, but it means also a certain lightness of spirit in which one becomes kind. Like a person that is heavy in spirit bears grudge. The Kapha, earthy typology, is like heavy melancholic. It's the melancholic temperament that has an elephant memory and never forgets and never forgives. But if one is light, one is like, okay, you know, things can go, it's fine, let it all go. So it's all, always a double entendre. He speaks about lightness, like I'm light, my energy is light, I can do things, and at the same time there is a lightness of my inner being. And he says lightness is brought about by pranayama. Pranayama in Patanjali's system would be before Pratyahara. But see, Geranda has switched things in his own way and he puts Pratyahara as stage four and then he puts Pranayama as later. In both cases you can see that both Patanjali and uh, Geranda, Geranda more than Patanjali and of course Geranda is a thousand times more skillful about Hatha Yoga than Patanjali who had no expertise in Hatha Yoga whatsoever, and Geranda therefore considers Pranayama an advanced practice. I always call the attention on this, because many people want to do Pranayama prematurely, and then they can damage themselves, while Pranayama is a bit of an advanced practice. It looks very easy, like you are just breathing, but there is so much more to it than just breathing. And then at the same time, there are many of you who have learned pranayama the right way, and you don't do it. Like you are sleeping on a gold mine. It's dynamite. Pranayama is dynamite. It is not a coincidence that the yogis, one of the yoga texts says that the result of pranayama is, can be even levitation. Like how far can this lightness go? Yogis of India say if you do pranayama like crazy, you can become so light that spontaneous phenomena of levitation may occur. So lightness is brought about by pranayama, that's his fifth stage. Direct perception by meditation, dhyana. So he jumps directly to meditation and transcendence, his last step as he sees yoga, is bestowed by samadhi, which is verily liberation. This last part of the paragraph is beautiful because first of all we see that Geranda is an original thinker. He doesn't just do a copycat after Patanjali. He uses his own mind. He created his own system. No, he could argue with Patanjali why Pratyahara comes earlier and Pranayama comes later in his system and so on. Like He, has, he dares to challenge the norms and to make up his own mind, to do his own experiment. So we appreciate him in yoga because he is an original thinker. He is not just a copycat, a scribe who repeats things from the past. He is alive. He is a yoga master indeed. And uh, the, this verse is also very beautiful 
because he says transcendence is bestowed by samadhi and he could close the sentence like he said the seven but he wants to say something about samadhi he loves samadhi and he says and transcendence is bestowed by samadhi who is which or which is verily liberation or mukti like he says this samadhi is what freedom is all about I remember that the same thing appeared in the life of Ramakrishna Ramakrishna was on the borderline between being a yogi and being just a Hindu saint most people consider him rather a Hindu saint but of course he did generate amounts of yoga of different kinds even hatha yoga to a certain extent and many other experiments in yoga and Ramakrishna strived in his life to take any religion which people showed to him any bona fide religion and practice it and show that that religion leads to the supreme spiritual emancipation and one of the commentators who wrote about his life understanding exactly what he was trying to say he said by showing his yoga experience and his samadhi experience he said thus ramakrishna demonstrated that samadhi is a path of reaching spiritual realization like many people can shake their head and say what are you talking about like some of course samadhi is the spiritual realization no not for christian theologians the christian theologians think that yoga is a demonic heretic thing because you don't worship jesus christ and you don't and you believe in reincarnation or whatever you do and therefore those who practice yoga will never make it to the kingdom of heaven any fanatic dogmatic christian theologian will say that you can get saved only by being in the catholic church and even if you are another kind of christian like if you are a jehovah's witness or something you'll burn in hell and not making to the kingdom of heaven and of course if you do yoga it's not going to work and uh, but you say but great yogis like yogananda or uh, ramakrishna they reach to samadhi and then they will say so what this samadhi is like you are like in a trance it's like a coma it's like and why is that the kingdom of heaven like somebody who looks freshly from outside they say why is samadhi supposed to be one and the same thing with eternal life with you know like why is it who says that it's maybe like uh, you'd have taken lsd or something and you just got stoned and why is that supposed to be spiritual emancipation therefore ramakrishna felt the need to show that actually by going into samadhi you become a saint like you reach spiritual realization you take it for granted but it is not for when geranda doesn't take it for granted and he says transcendence is bestowed by samadhi which by the way this samadhi is a verily liberation this is indeed the mukti because the indian culture is not searching for samadhi the indian called the indian philosophy is searching for moksha for mukti for liberation and he says this samadhi is liberation like this is the way in which the yogis are entering into liber- into liberty into freedom into moksha or mukti it had to be said it it's not an of course it had to be said 
And he starts, therefore, implicitly. The text is very nicely met because it says, um, and this is not translated in the usual translations, it's left there in Sanskrit for whoever can read Sanskrit, because it says, Atha Shodanam, like now we are going to speak about yoga, like in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali says, Atha Yoga something. It refers to, now we are going to talk about yoga. Now comes the presentation of yoga. But, and here, it says in Sanskrit, now I'm speaking about Shodana, like there is a title, there is a paragraph title, but usually you don't read. I put them here in the translation as a sort of a headlines, and there are many, many of them, because almost every two, three strophes he changes the subject. And then he says, now let's speak about the first of those seven with which we start, Shodhana, which he said very clearly that this Shodhana or purification is obtained through the Shatkarma Kriya, through Kriya Yoga, through the purification acts. So, of course, now, from now on, we are going to start for many, many shlokas. Here it's shloka 12 and this goes until shloka 50 something. We are going to talk for about 40 shlokas, which is four times more than we have been until now. But it will take less because there is very little to comment really on these practical things. Now he starts taking it like an engineer. And he says, let's take headline number one. And this will be actually the main theme in this chapter number one. In the chapter number one, he will approach Shodhana, the purification. And therefore, he will speak about the Kriya system, the system, the basic original system of the Kriyas. With Kriya, please pay attention to the fact that in India, yoga teachers, not being Germanic in their brains, they have misused the word Kriya by creating about four different things, which means Kriya. Kriya Yoga in Geranda Samhita, therefore, in the tradition, and this is how we use it in Agama, Kriya Yoga here, it means the Kshat Kriyas, the six Kriyas, such as Vamana and Dauti and all those, and all, you'll see them, we go through them briefly, of course. So the Kriyas are having this meaning. Then there is a commentator of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which calls Kriya the last three of the Niyamas. So after Santosha, you've got Tapas, Svadhyaya and Ishvara Pranidhana. And some commentators of Yoga Sutra of Patanjali say the practice of Tapas, Svadhyaya, self-study, and Ishvara Pranidhana, surrender, aspiration, self-offering, is Kriya. This is Kriya. And in a certain way they mean, because Kriya is a word in Sanskrit which means it acts. It's a verb, Kri, which is used even when an insect is biting. You know, you say about that insect, be careful, it's Kri. It's going to, it's karte, it's going to bite, it's getting at you. So Kri means something active, something which goes into action. But everything, even when you do your headstand, you are going in an action. Even when, so like this, everything is Kriya Yoga, because Yoga is based on the fact that you move your ass and do something. And even when you don't move your ass, you move your prana. You can sit on your bum, but still you do something. No? So therefore, what I'm trying to say here is, uh, this name Kriya is like you move your soul. When finally you move your soul, you do tapas, like you are not a lazy bum, you just do tapas and you do a lot of spiritual study and self-inquiry, and you love God, and you 
offer yourself to God. You have aspiration. And that's Kriya Yoga. It's like you are an active spiritual practitioner. You are alive in your heart. You are alive in your soul. And you move. That's a second meaning of Kriya Yoga. The third meaning of Kriya Yoga was given by Paramhamsa Yogananda when he claimed that the system which Babaji taught Lahiri Mahasaya and Lahiri Mahasaya to Sri Yukteswar and Sri Yukteswar taught to him is Kriya Yoga. So they are the, the famous practices of Kriya Yoga from the Yogananda system. And then a more recent Indian guru Swami Satyananda Sarasvati, the direct disciple of Swami Shivananda, he created a system of Hatha Yoga Kundalini Yoga and he took some of the practices of Kundalini Yoga and he called them Kundalini Kriyas, Tantra Kriyas. And he published them and they are very much equivalent with some of the mudras from Kundalini Yoga. And that's why somebody should come and say, guys, you cannot misuse terms. Like if we'd have a brevet office, a patent office, or a copyright, intellectual copyright office where nobody can use the name Coca-Cola as long as it is trademarked and copyrighted by Coca-Cola. If somebody would have copyrighted and trademarked the names of the different techniques and procedures from yoga, then other people might not have used the same name and they would have been forced to concoct some other name for what. But like this, that's a big problem in India and that's why Kriya means at least four things and probably more. And here when Geranda speaks, he speaks about the first style of Kriya, the first meaning of Kriya, like Kriya in the traditional meaning, in the meaning of these older Shastras. And therefore he's going to speak about the first level of yoga, which for him, it starts with purification. We can argue, because many yogis did not start with that, or many yogis say, well, yeah, purification a little bit here, a little bit there, and then as you push the energy through your channels, the body will automatically have to throw out some impurities. So purification is coming along. Probably Sage Geranda was either a Virgo or a Taurus astrologically, or was a person with a strong Vishuddha chakra or something, and he was inclined like for him, you know, first purification. First we start with a solid base, basis of purification. So that's why his system starts with this, but this gives us an invaluable thing. Geranda Samhita is the only known great text of Hatha Yoga, of physical yoga, which talks clearly and uh, encyclopedically about the Kriyas. 99% of the people that got studied Kriya Yoga and done some of it, they got it from here. Like Geranda Samhita is the Bible of the Kriya Yoga, is there something written here and there? Yes, something. A little bit written throughout Hatha Yoga Pradipika and other texts. Not much, not as systematic, not dividing them in categories and in subcategories and defining. Like Geranda, at least in this chapter, he's very focused on health, on Ayurveda, on balance, on vitality. Like he's trying to put a solid foundation to the yoga practice the fire of yoga. He's trying to build in a solid way. Many, many yogis have endorsed this, like some of the teachers that I have known were very focused on uh, this purification. Direndra Brahmachari, for example, when he was asked to write a book, his first book which he wrote on yoga, which is a rare, rare, precious book, called Yogic Sukshma Vyayama, 
is at least half of it is focused on the Kriyas. Kriyas, warming exercises and purification practices. When Direnda Brahmachari was invited by the Prime Minister of India then, Miss Indira Gandhi, to teach her and her family yoga, that's what he taught them. He taught them Vamana Dauti, he taught them Jiva Mula Dauti, he, he taught them all sorts of techniques which are simple, they take a short time and they have disproportionately efficient results in daily life. This is one thing about the Kriyas, that I've known yogis who have been doing yoga for 30 years, and one of them told me, you know, the yoga technique which I use mostly, and which I find the most efficient, like, there's a guy living in Europe, and he's confronted with a lot of the things, of like, his life is not like the life of the yogi from an ashram in India. He's rubbing his shoulders with people in the subway and all that. So when I spoke to this guy, he simply said, you know what, the yoga technique which I find most efficient, most shortcut, most direct, and you know, like, is Vamana Dauti. Like, you know, if you take, boil the whole yoga down, and Vamana Dauti is the thing which saves you of most troubles and saves the day most often. Like he said, if I would teach somebody one technique from yoga, I would teach them the bloody Vamana Dauti, you know. Like Kriyas have this, that they are very simple, very down to earth, but because of this they do a lot of visible things. When you emit a mantra, do Laya Yoga, maybe it balances your brain waves, but maybe you are not aware enough to realize that three hours later after the meditation, your brain waves are particularly harmonious and balanced. And then that effect comes and goes even without you putting the finger on it and saying, aha, that's what Laya Yoga has done to me. But with Vamana Dauti, you will definitely feel what it's doing to you. It's definitely, you are going to say, my gosh, my day was so dark and I did my Vamana Dauti and suddenly I'm flying. You know, Suddenly I feel so light and I have inner fire and I have this and that. That's why the Kriyas have a charm of their own. They are very down to earth. And people who are not very grounded, they don't fully understand the impact of these Kriyas. But Geranda proves himself to be down to earth. He starts with this foundation. Now, of course I'm going to read his classifications. I wish I could just draw on a board, make diagrams and this, but this is something which is done in the yoga courses. Even there, the classification of the Kriyas is always delivered in the second level of Agama teaching, as soon as people go to the second level when we start teaching them further Kriyas, like further from what they have learned in the first level, then we just tell them the whole system to cut it short and to say, look, what you learned in the first level is just the tip of the iceberg. There is way more to Kriya Yoga. And here is approximately how this system looks so that you follow up over this month and the next month and start checking the boxes like I've learned this, I've learned this, I have learned this and so on and so forth. So that's why don't bother that you don't remember all these things. Uh, all these lectures are, are sooner or later uploaded and you have them available. We hope that this will come in printed format so you can follow it there as well. Uh, that's why we go through it. And then as soon as he gets to the small ones, he starts actually explaining the techniques. Uh, please be aware of one fact. If I am explaining here in a satsang, it doesn't mean I'm teaching it like in a yoga class. Like the fact that you are going to hear Vatasara Dauti 
or I don't know which other, Agnisara, Kriya or something here, it doesn't mean that you have been initiated in it and taught. Because that's precisely the interesting thing, to see how little and how sketchy things are written in a text like this. And actually when you study it in a class with a teacher, then you get Mike or somebody coming and speaking one hour and a half about Shankaprakshalana or Vamana Dauti and going into details and then you are advised to try and come with feedback. Like the explanation and the practical demonstration of each and every one of them is a different thing. That's an initiation which you get in the classes from the teachers. And that's why do not be deluded by the fact that I'm going to outline for you kriyas, asanas, mudras, pranayamas. It doesn't mean I'm teaching them to you. But it's a very interesting thing to see how Geranda speaks about it. Like what would a yogi boil down? If a yogi would want to write two lines or four lines about a yoga technique, a kriya, what would they write down? What do they consider that it is memorable? That it is remarkable? That it has to be said? And you are going to see how interesting that gets. And of course, it can uh, increase your appetite because uh, most of these kriyas, asanas, bandhas, and with the few exceptions which are considered in the tradition of yoga today to be rather useless or redundant, we teach them all in Agama. So what you hear here are things which if you didn't hear them yet, it means they are in the curriculum which comes next in your, in your program, but they are being taught. Every time when I'm going to reach a technique which is not being taught, then I'm going to let you know that this is not included and the reason for which it is not included. So he starts first with about three shlokas of classification. And he says, Shodana, the first level of my system, says Geranda, is Shodana. The human being has to purify himself, themselves. The six acts of purification by which this is done are Dhauti, Basti, Neti, Lauliki, or Laukiki, there are different spellings of this, Trataka, and Kapalabhati. Again, everybody who has gone beyond the second level of Agama knows this, that there are six Kriyas, six families of Kriyas, and they approximately have those names. And now he starts splitting the hair. He takes the first of them, which is Dauti, and which is actually the most numerous of them. For example, Nauli, Laukiki or Lauliki as they call it, which is our Nauli Kriya, in regular yoga is called Nauli, is one Nauli. There are not 15 Naulis. There's one way of doing Nauli. Kapalabhati is one Kapalabhati. So each one of those represents just one yoga technique. But Dauti represents approximately 20 techniques of purification. Most of the Kriyas from yoga are under the headline of Dauti. So some of them are just not the name of a technique. They are the name of a family of techniques. And that's the case for Dauti. And he says, Dauti is of four kinds. And they clear away the impurities of the body. He doesn't say the impurities of which body. And in the moment when you say mens sana in corpore sano, that a healthy mind exists only in a healthy body, then automatically you say, if I clean the body, then this will reflect as a cleaning in the mind sooner or later, as a cleaning in my energy body, and so on. And that's why when they say the Dautis are four types of Dautis and they clear away the impurities of the body, 
he speaks obliquely again. He means vaguely which body of all the bodies ultimately. Antar Dauti, the internal Dautis, Danta Dauti, the dental Dautis, Hrid Dauti is the heart area Dautis, and Mulashodana or the cleansing of the root, which obviously refers to the area of Muladhara or Perineum. And now he subdivides. He says there are four types of Dautis, and the first of them is called Antar Dauti, internal Dautis. Aren't they all of them internal? Yes, these are names. No, you have to give it a name of some sort. And the names are not always the most brilliant names. They are just names found by simple people practicing yoga. So this is the last of the classification. He went Dauti. Dauti is of four types. Now Antar Dauti is in its own turn subdivided into four parts. Vata Sara, which means by the essence of air. Sara is a Sanskrit word which means essence. And Vata like in Ayurveda, vata dosha, it means air. So it's the essence of air. So when you say vata sara, it means you purify with air. If you are a materialistic, gross person, you say, well, this is done with air. But the yogis are smart. They say it's vata sara. It's done with the essence of air. Like the air is not just air. The air has an essence. And the essence of the air is prana, the energy which charges up the air. And the essence of the air is vayu tattva, is the whole aerial tattva, is the air element, which means things in other bodies, like pranic things, mental, emotional things. So it's a very, very soft and very ambiguous word, because you say purification by the essence of air. For those of you who have studied in Agama already Pranayama, Pranayama is a Vatasara because it's a purification by the essence of air. Because in Pranayama you take air with Prana and then you push that Prana through your channels and through the body. So you are purifying yourself with something which is extracted from the air. Therefore with the essence of air, with the secret essence, with the invisible essence, with the sap, from air. So that's why their language is very beautiful because it is always this double entendre. So it is Antar Dauti, internal Dautis are with the essence of the air, Varisara, which is with the essence of water, Vari is an alternative word for water, Vakhnisara, by the essence of fire. And everybody would say, wait, okay, wait a second. This guy says there is purification by the essence of air, water. Fire. Okay, they are not in the order of the chakras, but wouldn't I expect that the next one would be by the essence of the earth? No, the last one, paradoxically, is not following suit, is not going exactly in, aligned with those. And the last one is called Bahishkrita, which literally means to push outwards, and which is a very surprising technique, which, again, we teach here in Agama. And thus he has gone down to the grassroots. It started from Kriyas, Dauti, Antar Dauti, and now he defined four Dautis. Now these ones, they don't have subcategories. These ones are actual techniques of purification. Now you are going to hear, those of you who never read a traditional text, now you are going to hear how the yogis describe their techniques. This is the mystery of yoga. This is, these are the core te texts of yoga. 
This is how the yogis speak about techniques here, about some very down-to-earth techniques of kriya, of simple physical starting with physical purification. Vatasara. With mouth strutted like the beak of a crow, that's a typical thing, because when they do some absorptions, they poke their lips like this. So they use a, a beak-like form of the mouth. So with mouth strutted like the beak of a crow, see, ex examples taken from nature. These people were simple people living in the jungle, so they always got inspired by nature. They speak a simple, direct language. With mouth strutted like the beak of a crow, drink air slowly, filling the stomach. When you, when you inhale, you don't fill the stomach. You fill the lungs. So here you have to actually do a trick so the air shouldn't go in the lungs but it should go in the stomach. This, they don't explain. They say it, and if you get it, well. If you don't get it, you say, oh, maybe they mean that when you inhale, it's like your stomach gets bigger. And you get deluded by it. Like, it's not for outsiders. They talk in this vague language where the teacher knows exactly what this means, and he can explain it to the pupil, but then it's not extremely clear. The yogis never intended to make their texts very clear because they never intended to have yoga taught from books. Some things can be taught from books with great care, but not all of it. And there are so many implications and subtle things. So, he says, with mouth strutted like the beak of a crow, drink air slowly, filling the stomach. Move it therein. There is a version of the translation because it can mean also move this area. Like somehow you have to move the air in the stomach. How would you move the air in the stomach? The Tibetans have a more rough version where you just sit in a sitting like meditation position and you agitate the midriff. You simply move your body in circles like you do a sort of a hula hoop with the upper area here. And, of course, the yogis from India have gone way more sophisticated than that because they do it with Nauli Kriya, which is a bit of a subtle technique, like people take usually a few weeks or months before they manage to do the full Nauli, which churns this abdominal area. So, basically, what this teacher says is this. You absorb air in the stomach. God knows how. I mean, I know that some of you understand perfectly how but if you haven't done it ever, you don't really know what he's talking about. You take air in your stomach, and while the air is in your stomach, like what's happening when you have air in your stomach? You almost automatically and quickly tend to burp it out. That's a natural tendency, that the air will tend to come, but you don't burp it out, and on top of it, you practice nauli, so you somehow churn this thing inside you with the air being inside. So, it says... Move it therein, move the air therein, or move the abdomen, which will anyhow have as effect that the air in the stomach will kind of agitate a little bit, and slowly expel it through the western passage. They literally use the word Paschima, like in Paschimottanasana, which means west. In this case, the western passage, it means the upper end of the things, and basically, he says in a civilized way, burp it out after you've finished your work with this air. So the technique seems to sound like inhale, churn it, burp it. 
Why is that useful in any way? Even modern medicine has done research on it. Like there are yogic hospitals and other laboratories of medical studies in India that studied yogis doing these things. And they found out that actually if you take air in the stomach, first of all the stomach is not very used to have air in it. The stomach may have all sorts of gases which you burp, but those are not air. They don't contain oxygen. Those gases are putrid gases or carbon dioxide gases. So there is no oxygen. And in the moment when you put air, which has some amount of oxygen in the stomach, the oxygen, which is a pretty active gas, it will start interacting with your stomach. It will oxidize things. It will do things which normally don't happen in the stomach. And when it comes out, it doesn't come out as clean air anymore. So you put the air in, you churn it, the air sucks automatically some things to it because it mixes, it reacts with some of the things there, and then when you burp it, some things are coming out. So actually you do clean yourself with air. And this is that's the description. Like it doesn't give details. I made a step here to give you a few more details. And there are about another 10 details which need to be given about position. How do you do it? For how long time do you keep it in? What to do if and what to do if? And there are a lot of things and this is what you learn practically. I'm not intending to turn the satsangs in teaching kriyas or asanas or this. I just want to show you how the yogis spoke briefly, clearly and sometimes not very clearly about some of these things. Like they say, expel it through the Western passage. If you are not used to the slang of yoga, you will not realize what the Western passage is. Like in Paschimottanasana, when things are moving up like this. So it's a comparison and only people who are in, they know what is said there. And so one shloka describes this. With mouth strutted like the beak of a crow, deep air slowly filling the stomach, move it therein and slowly expel it to the western passage. That's number 15. And this technique is described in two strophes. 16. So the first describes how to do it. And the second is going to entice you to do it by telling you how good it is and what wonderful effects it has. And it says, this is the excellent Vatasara which should be kept very secret. I did not add the word very just to impress you. It is in Sanskrit. It is used in Sanskrit. Like it doesn't say this should be kept secret. It says this should be kept very secret. Like people are saying, Swami, are you kidding me? Like you are teaching us to just swallow air and churn it a little bit and burp it. What's very secret about this? See, this is the lack of transfiguration. This is skepticism atheism, materialism, flatness, that people have no more enthusiasm. Everything is like, oh yeah, what's the big deal? If you do yoga like this, like yeah, what's the big deal? That's what you are going to get from your yoga practice. If you do yoga like, my God, this is the excellent Vatasara, which should be kept very secret. And when you do it, you are going to get three times more effects. Because your mind does a lot of this job. People don't understand. The secret is not, I mean, I can say, keep it secret because some people will do it wrong and they can get trouble. 
some idiot can have a perforated ulcer in his stomach and he needs to go to surgery, he needs medical care and he's going to swallow air and the air will go, it's full of bacteria or whatever, and the air will go through the wall of his stomach and will enter in his entrails, in his abdominal cavity, and then he's going to have a septicemia and die. So, no, it's like, I can say, can somebody get hurt by Vatasara? Sure, in some extreme cases, if I stretch a little bit, it is possible to do it inappropriately, or to swallow too much air, or God knows what other mistake to do. So we can always bring the excuse that Geranda says, uh, you know, don't give this to all and sundry because people have to be properly educated in these things and a teacher has to supervise them once or twice to make sure that they got it right and that they are not going to harm themselves or others in the future by simply transmitting these things superficially. That's a pretty good excuse. But after all these years of yoga, I can see very clearly that the yogis always introduce this. In the Shiva Samhita, there is a paragraph which says it clearly, because it says you should do this secretly. And then the author feels like he wants to make it clear. He says, because every such practice, when it is done secretly, gains in power, and when you babble about it to everybody else, it loses its power. It's a psychological thing. It's a psychological thing. When you do something and you play Boy Scout games, that it is your secret and it's a very secret thing, somehow this motivates you psychologically. It gives you another 50% additional efficiency to your practice. And that's why you have to play the game. It's exactly like you would say, uh, when you play Hamlet and you hold that skull in your hand and you say, oh, poor Yorick, and then eventually you come to say, to be or not to be, that's the question. And then you say, when I say to be or not to be, can I poke my nose at the same time? I, to be or not to be, that, the, that transforms Hamlet in something ridiculous. It's the difference between sublime and ridiculous. Just because you have the improper body language or something. It's the same with yoga. Yoga has to be done, it's like playing a theater, it's like acting in a play. You have to do it like the yogis invented it. And the yogis invented it in a certain mood. There is a certain enthusiasm about it. Like, wow, now I've got Vatasara Dauti and I'm going in secret to practice my Vatasara Dauti. It sounds like a childish game, but it does something and the yogis know. That's why yoga has to be learned like yoga. If you learn yoga like aerobics, it works in a different way. It will have different effects. This is not a foolish thing because the mind and the body cooperate. And you are going to see that almost at every single technique, the guy comes and says, this is very secret. Don't tell it to anybody. Why is it so secret to just swallow some air and burp it? It's the psychology of it. It's the mood. It's the state in which you do. Like I've got a priceless pearl and I'm, this puts value on it. It's like this is really important and I am privileged. I'm one of the few chosen people. I'm one of the blessed ones who got to hear this and do this. Funnily enough, it is true even now. Like when you are going to study 10 years from now, 
How many people in your entourage or in the world that you have met have done Vatasara Dauti or Vamana Dauti at least for six months as a daily practice? You are going to see that nobody, less than a person in 10,000, probably less than a person in 100,000 nowadays. So actually the people who know, they are a minority of privileged people. The, the fact is still there, but people with the skepticism tend to kill it. They tend to overlook it, not to see it. That's why Goethe, the famous German writer and philosopher, noticing this modernization of the human spirit, he said it so beautifully. He said, it is not the gods and the spirits of the nature that are dead. It is your hearts that are dead. Like people say, there are no more fairies because we don't see them. But you see, the Thais have little houses where they worship all these spirits of the land and so on. For the Thais, they exist for some of the Thais. Some of the Thais have taken their little houses, their spirit houses down, because what the heck, we are in the 21st century. It's not the spirits which are dead. It's the enthusiasm, the sense of mystery, the sense of awe, this sense of magic, that we live in a magic universe and things are there. There's much more than meets the eye between the heaven and earth, as Shakespeare says, I paraphrase, I didn't say it by, to the letter. That's why it's the same here with yoga. Yoga is done with a certain spirit and that's what I want you to get from these satsangs. The spirit of Geranda. I want you to really learn from Geranda what yoga is. And Geranda says, fill the gullet, fill the, with the mouth with air and drink it, blah, blah, blah. This is the excellent vatas, the excellent vatasara. Like what? The bit of a burping kriya. This is the excellent vatasara which should be kept very secret. It purifies the body in general. Yeah? So it says, it purifies the body, destroys all ailments, like it will have a beneficial effect even if you have dengue fever. It destroys all ailments. Right? I mentioned dengue fever because it's so up to date, it's so modern these days to have it. So it purifies, destroys all ailments and increases the inner fire Especially, he means in its gastric manifestation, he means the gastric fire, because the yogis copying the Ayurvedic doctors, they said that if you have a strong fire, you are healthy. And if you don't have a strong fire, that's the clear recipe for big problems and disease. So, for them to have a strong fire is the guarantee that you'll live a hundred years healthy. So, this is what Vatasara does. It purifies the body, destroys all elements, so it's a general healer, of course, to a small extent, and increases the inner fire, especially in its gastric digestive manifestations. See the spirit of yoga. This is where I'm sometimes laughing a lot with Maha when she comes with her medical thing. Maha will go on the internet for five days, and then come up with the fact that I don't know which university from Winnipeg in Canada has made a research on some yoga purification techniques and they actually researched Vatasara Dauti. And they took 20 guinea pigs or 200 guinea pigs and they made them swallow air and burp and do whatever and they took blood tests and x-rays and whatever they did. And therefore, Geranda says... 
This is the excellent Vatasara, which should be kept very secret. It purifies the body, destroys all ailments, and increases the inner fire. And Maha will come and say, there is a study, that's always the first words of some of Maha's medical statements, there exists a study in Winnipeg, Canada, which shows that people that have done Vatasara Dawudi, they have demonstrated a 20% improvement in their digestive functions. Geranda doesn't mention 20%. Geranda says it destroys all ailments and increases the inner fire. Period. Like it depends only on your enthusiasm how much. Like if you are going to be skeptical and make a study in Winnipeg University it's going to give about a 20% improvement. If you do it like Geranda, it cures all ailments and boosts your digestive fire. Yoga is to a large extent a faith healing. It's a sort of a self-hypnosis, self-suggestion. It's an NLP, like you strengthen it by going into, like look what Geranda said. I don't give a rat's ass about the study from Winnipeg. I say, Geranda says, it purifies the body. Uh, it has been noticed that the heavy metals in the people who did the Vatasara Dauti for four weeks has decreased with 9%. It bores me to death to hear that the heavy metals have been decreased with 9%. It purifies the body. How much? Up till 100% probably. Because I am not a medical researcher and I don't give a rat's ass. I want to believe that it purifies the body. It destroys all ailments. It increases the inner fire. That's the spirit of yoga. Not to start there, like how much will it, you know, do it. Believe in yourself. Believe in your practice. Go for it crazily. Leave the researchers in the laboratory to do their studies and evaluation. You just do it. Do your vatasara. It will increase your digestive fire. It will purify. That's the spirit of yoga. The yogis didn't have scientific research. They had themselves. And they knew. You do it in secret. It's like, oh my God, I learned Vatasara. Now I'm going to really explode the world. You know, it's like because I got this secret practice. And this increases the momentum. It increases what I invest in that practice. That's why yoga done without enthusiasm and with skepticism loses a lot of its momentum. Yoga has to be done with your heart into it. You must have some enthusiasm. You must believe in some of the technology which you use. And he continues directly with Varisara. Atta Varisara Dautim. Now we'll speak about Varisara. So there are small paragraph titles and that's the shloka. From now on, I'll be a bit more fluid. Uh, it starts, it flows just in this way. I'll see how far I will reach through this list. Varisara, the purification with the essence of water. Fill the gullet with water up till the throat by drinking slowly. That's, that's by the way, Varisara is Shankaprakshalana. Good, good old Shankaprakshalana. Fill the gullet with water up till the throat by drinking slowly. First of all, it doesn't say with salt water. Which is not because Geranda didn't know, but it's because Geranda said, well, when I'm teaching you in detail, I'm teaching you in detail. Now I'm speaking briefly. 
in two verses. I'm trying to describe this. So he speaks roughly, and that's why people read this. They think it works with water. It doesn't really work with water. It works with salty water. Fill the gullet with water up till the throat. How, how poetic. In a, in a, I don't know which way, in a, in a rainbow way, in the fleur du mal of Baudelaire, this is, you know, because it's like, fill the gullet with water, fill the gullet with water up till the throat. When any one of you who has done Shankprakshalana, you know that sometimes it's like the water is up to your throat and you feel, if I drink a little bit more, I'm just going to burst. Like, it literally feels that way. Fill the gullet up with water up till the throat. No, this expresses the experience. These are people who did it. And they say you drink and drink and drink until you are so full of it and it's kind of you feel I cannot take a drop extra of this thing. You know? It simply says, and it's the spirit of it, like I've seen people, they drank three glasses of salt water and they said, I cannot anymore. I think I'm going to faint. Listen to Geranda, fill the gullet with water up till the throat. You know, it's like stop protecting yourself, stop pampering yourself, be a bit tough on yourself, you know. Fill the gullet with water up till the throat, you know. It's like don't give yourself excuses and like be a little bit severe, serious, crazy with your yoga practice. Fill the gullet with water up till the throat by drinking slowly. He says, you know, you are drinking slowly. I mean, you are filling up and filling up. But of course, because you are drinking slowly, we know what's going to happen. Then move and push it through the stomach. It doesn't say how that you do all those movements and so on, because this is what the guru teaches you. So it, he speaks on the surface. Then move and push it through the stomach until you expel it through the lower passage. Simplifying it in just one verse. Drink until you fill up, move until it's, you expel it. Now comes the Shloka 18, which describes the benefit, and of course you know what it starts with. This excellent Varisara should be kept very secret. By practicing it diligently, one gets a radiant and divine body. That's what Geranda says. That's what what. Shankaprakshalana. If you practice Shankaprakshalana diligently, diligently says it, you start doing it once a month or once every two weeks, and you go like this for one year. And then you get a radiant and divine body. Because if you have less impurity, your inner energy becomes radiant. A radiant and divine body. Now look at Greek sculptures. We say you are beautiful like a Greek god or like a Greek goddess. Sometimes a Roman skull. You are beautiful like a Roman god. Okay, whichever. Look at those marble statues of the antiquity. Those are supposed to be divine bodies. What do you see in those bodies? There is a purity, right? When you look at a, a Greek statue, it's made of shining, immaculate, beautiful white marble. And it gives you a feeling that this is a divine body. A divine body automatically means something without impurity, something without imperfections, and so on and so forth. This is what Geranda says. You know, you, everybody accumulates impurities. Even in the 18th century, 
not to mention today where we eat plastic and genetically modified stuff and all sorts of chemicals. But even in the 18th century India, vegetarian Indian people in the 18th century, and still they were accumulating impurities. And he says, if you purify it with this varisara, diligently, like not just once in a blue moon, it gets a radiant, one gets a radiant and divine body. And he feels he wants to say three verses, not two here. He wants to add a little bit more, which is unusual, like he really wants to pump on it. And he says, the Varisara is the best Dauti. Like in Dauti there are about 16 techniques. And he says the Varisara is the best. Like if all the Dautis you want to just do one, do Varisara, do Shanka Prakshalana. Like the Shanka Prakshalana says Geranda is sort of the ultimate Dauti. Like you get most of the purification effects through this Varisara Dauti, which is just another name for Shanka Prakshalana, as I said a few times already. So he says this Varisara, the Varisara Dauti, is the best Dauti. There are such statements, like which is the best asana of all the asanas, which is the best mudra of all the mudras, which is the best banda of all the bandhas. You are going to see, Garanda has some opinions there. His opinion about the Dauti class of the techniques, he says, Varisara is the best. Does it mean the other ones are useless? No. But his opinion is, if you would be have to choose one, then choose Varisara. Stay with Shankar Prakshalana because Shankar Prakshalana is a sort of a thorough cleansing of the body. He who practices it diligently, he says it again, purifies his impure body. Remember the fire of yoga. The fire purifies. Here it happens with water, but the fire is a metaphor. It doesn't refer literally to fire. It's just a metaphor. So he says, he who practices diligently purifies his impure body. He doesn't have a doubt that you have an impure body when you start. It's inevitable to have an impure body when you start. And one purifies in his impure body and turns it into a godly one. This is often mentioned in Hatha Yoga texts. That one looks godly. Sometimes we think that, you know, when men and women are young and beautiful and proportional and very healthy, they take off their clothes, they go to the beach, and everybody says, my God, you, you look like a goddess, you look like a god, you know. It's so beautiful. That's what the Hindu yogis have said always. They have looked into this and they have seen that people practicing Kriyas and people practicing Hatha Yoga they tend to have a body which looks like Greek statues, like Roman statues, like God statues, like something tends to become radiant, beautiful, archetypal, and this is a typical goal of theirs. The Deva Deha, it basically means a resonance in your aura with the Devas, which the Devas are sattvic beings, so this means that you get a sattvic resonance in your subtle bodies so that you are resonating with the gods. You can resonate with mud, you can resonate with hell, you can resonate with stench, you can resonate with decay, or you can resonate with the gods. You can resonate with the archetypal, immortal, 
perfect, luminous, light beings. See, the goal of yoga is very great. It is a subtle thing. Because if you have a divine body, you have a divine mind as well. And therefore, there you have a lot of connections. This was about Varisara. A few more minutes, so I go at least probably through all the Dhautis. He moves to Agnisara. Agnisara Dhauti, which in the yoga system of Agama is actually uh, taught under the name of Agnisara Kriya. We teach it here. It says like this in the shloka number 20. Pull the navel knot. They use the word granti, which means a knot. Because there is an energy thing there in the, at the belly button. So they say pull the navel knot. The navel itself is like a knot in some way. Yeah? The belly, the umbilical cord. Pull the navel knot towards the spine a hundred times. This sounds a little bit like Udhyana Bandha. Like you are pulling the abdominal wall and the navel back. You suck it in. Actually, in this Agnisara Kriya, it's more of with the use of muscles and not with the use of the diaphragm like in Udhyana Bandha. It's not exactly the same. It's another dynamics. So it's a slightly, it's a pretty different technique. Pull the navel knot towards the spine a hundred times. It doesn't say if a hundred times during the same hold of the breath, which would be really difficult, or a hundred times, like make a hundred of them, a hundred performances. It's again an ambiguous formulation, which doesn't tell us exactly the practical details, because you have to go to the teacher from the practical details, because the teacher has to make sure you got it right. And the spirit, you know, it's secret, it's great, do it with enthusiasm and all that. Pull the navel knot towards the spine a hundred times. This cures all the diseases of the stomach and increases the, ju- the digestive fire called in Ayurveda Jatar Agni, the digestive Agni. See, this cures all the diseases of the stomach. A study made in the Montreal University has shown that people doing uh, Agnisara Kriya they have had 15% improvement in cases of ulcer and 25% improvement in cases of dyspepsia. That's not what Geranda says. Geranda may be considered an over-enthusiastic boaster, a balloony guy, because look what he says. He says, this cures all the diseases of the stomach. And then some twisted doctor will think and think and he will say, I know somebody who had a tumor coming from a uncured Lyme disease condition from a tick bite, which is, and that is nothing to do with the digestion. It's actually a nervous system thing. And let me see you guys who do Agnisara. How are you going to cure this one? And if you can't, then he's going to say, I wipe my ass with Geranda and his work because this idiot says, and gives false hopes to the world by saying this cures all the diseases of the stomach. You have to understand these gurus psychologically. Like they are really trying to inject enthusiasm. I don't know really scientifically if this cures 15% or 85% or 90% or 50% of all the abdominal diseases. And moreover, how many of these Agnisaras you should do every day? 
four hours of Agnisara would be enough. And what if you don't have enough enthusiasm and you are a bit skeptical and you, have, you are a bit flat psychologically and you do it like a chore, like an ox with a yoke on your neck and you are not singing in your heart when you are doing your Agnisara. No? Like it depends on so many factors, but Geranda maxes it out. He goes to the best possible thing while a skeptical, cautious doctor will go to the worst case scenario. Geranda goes to the best case scenario and he says, this cures all the diseases of the stomach and increases the Jatar Agni, the digestive fire. This is Vagnisara, the fire, Agnisara or Vagnisara is the same, two alternative words for fire. This is Vagnisara which gives success in the practice of yoga. No, he tells us something very profound. If you do Agnisara, if you do Udhyana, Nauli, whatever, other things, and you have a big fire, this gives you success in the practice of yoga. Wait a second, the practice of yoga can mean also Laya Yoga, meditation. Look what he says. If you bat your, if you flap your belly button, it's going to give you success in the practice of yoga in general. Like all the rest of your practice of yoga is going to become more fiery, more intense, more enthusiastic. Because you have more fire inside, you are going to be more efficient. You are going to be more driven. So this gives success in the practice of yoga. You are not going to be tired, flabby, to the limit of your resistance. Do your Vakhnisara. See how the early practices, in, these are the beginning practices, but they lay the foundation. They lay the foundation so you don't die halfway through the marathon of yoga. You can run the full marathon because they give you this. That's why in yoga sometimes the simple things are very important. You should never forget the simple things. Many, I've met people who, ten years, after ten years of yoga, they still have some very skewed way of looking upon things and are very confused. And when you check them on the basics, they failed miserably. No, like the basic things, the A, B, C. That's where it starts. It starts with your Vaknisara and with your Varisara and so on. You don't do those right and ten years later you become a skewed philosopher who gets lost in the labyrinths of his mind because you didn't put the foundation right. The foundation simply says this is Vaknisara which gives success. Like don't you want to have success in the practice of yoga? Is there any one of you who is here in Agama and wants to do yoga but doesn't want to have success? Like, are you doing yoga fearing that maybe you might have some success in the practice of yoga? No. Everybody does it hoping that it really works and you'll have success. Well, what gives you success? Vaknisara gives you success. There are a few others which are told the same thing. And you can see that it comes from Manipura. It comes from fire. You have more fire, you are going to be more strong in your practice. And there will be fewer things that can hold you back. You are going to be irresistible in your yoga practice. And he says, of course, in the shloka number 21, what you would expect. This Dauti, Vaknisara, 
difficult to attain even by the gods. Like it says, even the gods might not be able to perform Vagnisara correctly, or even the gods might not have the karma to have a guru who will teach them Vagnisara. So this Vagnisara, he says, it's a rare thing. Make a survey of people who did 10 years of yoga and ask them in the last one month, how much Vagnisara did you do? Just for a survey. Then you are going to see it's difficult to attain even by the gods because it's not enough that Swami Vivekananda teaches you Vagnisara Dauti. It's difficult to attain even by the gods because you learn it and you don't do it. And then where is your success in yoga? So that's why I'm saying it's difficult to attain even by the gods. What a statement. It says this technique, even some of the gods overlook it and somehow they don't get to do it. And it's poor them. It's their problem ultimately. This Dauti difficult to attain even by the gods must be kept secret. By it alone, which he says, if only if you do this, nothing else. By it alone, one can certainly obtain a divine body. A divine body again. Garanda says it pretty authoritatively. I don't know what the Winnipeg University will say about this, but Garanda says, if you do just this Vagnisara Dauti, probably like a madman, about three hours per day or something, if you do this alone, one can obtain a divine body. Maybe you have the balls to challenge Geranda. Maybe some of you would like to take a one-year tapas of three hours of Vagnisara Dauti every day and see what's happening to your body. Is, is Geranda right? Or are these people who smoke too much dope and they talk nonsense and they exaggerate in a pathological way? It's up to you to find out. That's what yoga is. Experiment, experiment, experiment. It's hands-on. It's practical. And the last of the Antar Dautis, and with this I will finish. It's a pretty extreme technique, which was called Bahishkrita. And this Bahishkrita, actually, skillfully, the author seems to blend two techniques in one. Because it's very strange. He starts talking about Bahishkrita. He ends talking about Bahishkrita. But in the middle he inserts a practice which I personally haven't seen done by anybody in this world. And I don't think there is any YouTube video about it as well. Bahishkrita. Draw air in the stomach by means of Kaki Mudra, the gesture of the crow. We already spoke about this. And then you'd swallow it in a certain way. So it's the same thing as in Vatasara. You draw air in the stomach, not in the lungs. Draw air in the stomach by means of Kaki Mudra and then hold it there for one hour and a half. Like that's really skewed. Because if I would put air in your stomach, you'd tend to burp it. And you'd have to find a way to stop it for one hour and a half. Which is a pretty long time. Then, and meanwhile, some gurus say also do some Nauli Kriya. Meanwhile, like rub it in as well. Then, after one hour and a half, push it down along the lower passage. So, this time you don't burp it. I'm sorry for the crudeness of it, but you actually fart it. You push it. Like, how can you control that? 
Like, you know, it's like, I understand that it naturally tends to burp, but if you don't burp it and don't burp it, then where will it go? Well, there's only one way it can go, right? So how do you do that? Push it down along the lower passage. This Dauti must remain a great secret and must not be exposed lightly. He goes a bit more specific. He says, a great secret and do not expose it lightly. The truth is that sometimes this Dauti can cause some health complications. It's a pretty, it can be pretty rough on the digestive system if you do it wrong and you don't understand what's happening there. And, def- and definitely with the addition. Then the text where it says, Atha Bahishkrita, now I'm going to talk about Bahishkrita, and then it came with this Shloka 22. Then it inserts a very strange thing because it didn't finish Bahishkrita, but it says, Atha Prakshalanam. Now I'm going to speak about Prakshalana, washing. So is it part of Bahishkrita or not? Some yogis do it with Bahishkrita. Some yogis consider it a totally different technique. And this one is insane. This is one which we don't teach in Agama because I have never been taught by any yogi. I didn't find anybody who claimed they could show it, demonstrate it, do it. And again, I have never seen a clip or anything about anybody doing it. And actually, if you interpret it ad literam, medically, it sounds like suicide. It sounds like totally insanity. Prakshalanam, Shloka 23. Then, standing in navel deep water, standing in navel deep water, so the water should be quite deep, draw out the Shakti Nadi, which means the large intestine. It's a Nadi. So you have to pull out your intestine out of your anus, like this. Wash it with the hands until all the filth is washed away. And when it's clean, draw it again into the abdomen. I can understand that it could be, theoretically, I understand that it could be drawn back by Nauli. Because Nauli is the technique which does this kind of thing. But I haven't heard about anybody being able to do this. According to the medical science and anatomy, your large intestine is held in the position by some membranes which anchor it to the abdominal walls. So it's not really possible to pull it like a hose out of your belly and kind of turn it like a glove inside out like this and have half of a meter of it hang out in the river and wash it like a piece of cloth and then (gasps) do some Udyana Banda and suck it back. That's what it says. That's what it suggests. This is some place where Geranda goes over the top. Like, okay, Prakshalanam. You know, and of course, 24 says this process should be kept secret, which definitely I agree with. Like, don't teach it to your kids. It is not easily achieved even by the gods. I can concur to that as well. And of course, by means of this alone, one gets a divine body, a deva deha. That definitely sounds right, but. These two shlokas are a loophole in Geranda Samhita of something which, if you know somebody who does this, please film them and send me the film. I would be curious to see the details of this practice. And then it gets back to Bahishkrita, because Bahishkrita was about taking air in the stomach. What had that to do with washing like a piece of cloth your bowels? And, uh, and farting it away. And then it gets back to Bahishkrita, like, <coughs> sorry, this was uh, sort of a, okay, I didn't mean it. 
but it's still there. 25. As long as a person has not attained the ability to retain the air inside for one and a half hour, performance of this great Dauti called Bahishkrita is not possible. So it simply says that's what this Bahishkrita depends on. Not only taking the air, but being able to stay with the air inside you, not in the lungs, but in the stomach, for one and a half hour. And do whatever you do. Of course, when we teach it in Agama, we teach it properly. Like we teach which are the phases of it, and what you do, and how you do. And it is possible. I have done it. Many people, from, I mean, every pupil is trying it when they get to that level. So Bahishkrita in itself is not so difficult. Although it must not be exposed lightly. It's one of the Kriyas which we teach late, late in the Agama curriculum, not immediately in the first levels, because it's a more difficult uh, Kriya. But again, remember that in the middle of it, there are inserted these two shlokas called Prakshalanam, which are preaching that you should extract your bowel through your anus, wash it, give it a good wash, and mysteriously suck it back into your abdomen, and then expect it to function normally and to still digest food and work even better than before. Again, this I cannot advise you to do, because I have never done it, and I have not seen anybody doing it. So if this was a yogic practice, maybe there are some secrets of it which are lost. Maybe it means only some very low part, because some people who have rectal prolapse, sometimes they stick out their rectum, but that's considered a disease by the medical profession. And therefore... Um, here we are having a mystery where this Kriya Hatha Yoga goes a little bit into the extreme realms and uh, it should be taken therefore with a pinch of salt. So with this we finish the Antar Dautis, the inner Dautis, which were of four kinds, Vatasara, Vaknisara, Varisara and Bahishkrita with its funny extension to it. I'm going to continue in a similar style to go with you next week through all the other Kriyas. Again, it's not an initiation, but at least it gives you a perspective of how crazy the yogis were and what they invented in the science of yoga. And the most important thing for me is this, the spirit of yoga. Like, how did these people think? What kind of people they were and what was their world like. With this, let us stop for now. It is late enough. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining this satsang. In the next week, if everything goes as planned, I'll continue with more from the chapter number one. Just for the record, today we have stopped at the shloka number 25. Next time we start with 26. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.